Welcome to Game Changers, the show that's about playing by your own rules when it comes to your career. Join us as we speak with people who've taken the road less traveled and found their niche. I'm your host, Seth Robinson. This season, we're taking some time out to reconnect, exploring the ways our game changers are forming connections in the world by creating new communities, spaces, and technologies. First Nations elders have incredible knowledge to share with all of us, and this is an opportunity for young people, for families, for teachers to step into a space where they can really grasp and learn from that knowledge. Today, we're going to the heart of Australia to speak with a guest who has made it her life's work to tell First Nations stories and share Indigenous knowledge that will help us all in the future. My name is Rona Napula Glyn MacDonald. I'm a Kadich woman from Central Australia, currently calling in from Mbantwa on Aranda country, which is um, also known as Alice Springs, and you can hear the birds in the background tweeting away. I'm actually working out of my brother's backyard today. But in my day-to-day, I'm the founding CEO of a not-for-profit called Common Ground, which exists to centre First Nations knowledge, people and cultures by amplifying our stories, our voices and our knowledge systems. And what a great setting we've caught you in. I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about Common Ground? You know, I understand one of the first projects that really led the way there was the First Nations bedtime stories. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Common Ground was conceived a while ago, but we launched in 2018 with a humble collection of curated and original articles online, so written content pieces that any Australian could use to learn more about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we got amazing traction on the website in the first year, but we began to recognise that while there were many adults that were using our open source platform, we wanted to look at ways that we could ensure that the next generation of Australians could learn about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and and provide opportunities for our communities and our elders to be able to share the incredible (coughs) knowledge that they hold that has been handed down since time immemorial. So where did the idea for the digital platform come as part of that? So it was actually a moment when I was in Melbourne. So I'd, I'd moved to Melbourne to study at university and in so many of the conversations I was having with individuals and collective groups of people, they would be constantly asking for book recommendations or places they could read online or asking questions that I didn't necessarily have the answers for. You know, I'm, I'm one person, I have my own lived experience, but First Nations communities are incredibly diverse from across Australia. So the idea for Common Ground was born because we really didn't have at that point any spaces online that were driven by First Nations people that could provide a space for open source learning for any person to jump into. So we began with a collection of curated and original content pieces and we talked to different volunteers across the country to help us bring that together as well as elders to guide what would go on the platform and really knowing that we couldn't start with everything and we wanted to launch with a a minimum viable product of what Common Ground could become. So we started with a series of about 20 articles that 
provided the foundation that any person might need to understand things about First Nations connection to country, you know, some of the cultural protocols we hold, some of the really key moments in history. And that's where it started and it's evolved quite significantly from that first space that we we began with and with the First Nations bedtime stories. That was really, for us, a moment where we wanted to bring together elders from across the country in different moments to record our dreaming stories for the next generation. There was once two spirits and a baby spirit. They were going up into the sky. They used to tell us a story about Pangalango men. They used to tease him and run back into Mother's Hollow. And he was a bit of a naughty boy. <laughs> I share this story because it's close to me. And it's our story, Lurica people's story. It's a story. That project, each year we work with five traditional owners or elders and we would record their stories on film and release five short films over a week. Generally, it's in June, but we've had to move it to November last year for COVID-19. So those particular stories go all across the country um, into schools. And we had 80,000 young people take part last year, which is pretty incredible. You know, the, the stories share lessons that have been handed down since time immemorial and really provide that glimpse for all young people to recognise that, you know, First Nations elders have incredible knowledge to share with all of us. And this is an opportunity for young people, for families, for teachers to step into a space where they can really grasp and learn from that knowledge. It's a really incredible project. And, you know, you've mentioned something which I find really interesting there in that, you know, storytelling is something we talk about a lot these days in terms of the digital space and in terms of marketing and being creative online. And it's almost become a buzzword in a lot of ways. But to First Nations people, storytelling has a very different meaning. Mm, storytelling is, is the centre of everything. It's how we, we organise knowledge, it's how we share knowledge, and it's how we connect. And I think, you know, at the centre of all of our cultures as First Nations people is, is relationality and, and stories are a way to relate to one another. It's a way of communicating. Um, and, you know, sometimes those stories uh, evolve over time and they shift based off the different connections that we have, but they're always grounded in, in truth and honesty and, and learning for all of our people. I believe you recently resigned from this role to focus more on your work with Common Ground, but you were previously a First Nations director at YLab Global. Is that correct? Yeah, so I had been with YLab for about five years. It's um, an amazing social enterprise that sits within the Foundation for Young Australians and exists to bring young people with lived experience together to solve our most complex social problems and, you know, it's a it's a pool of young people from across Australia who are coming together to work with 
the public sector, private sector, not-for-profits, different spaces to essentially centre young people in designing the solutions for our future. And my role there initially was as an associate. I came in, t- in 2016 and, and worked on gig-based projects and, and used my voice and, and my expertise as a, as a Kadich young woman to shape policy design with government, different kind of engagement programs with young people. And from there, I was really lucky to get an opportunity to, to join the team more formally as First Nations director. And my role was to essentially launch the first First Nations youth-led consulting practice that we've seen across the country, which is called YLAB First Nations. And that space is really about centering our young mob in creating opportunities and, and, and creating those pathways for them to use their voices to shape systems across Australia because we know that many of our communities aren't heard and particularly our young people aren't heard in designing the future that they want to see. And YLAB First Nations is about providing that space for them to come together as well as get paid to learn about systems thinking and co-design and, and really partner with government and different spaces across private industry to create a future that really centers their voices and perspectives. You mentioned working in the gig economy early on in that answer there, and, you know, you zeroed in on something which is important, which is, you know, young people getting paid for the work they do, which is unfortunately not always the case we see, particularly in industries that might be more creative or seen as part of that gig economy. I'm curious, as someone who has worked in that space and then who also has spun a few plates working on your own different projects, do you think the way we work, particularly as young people, is really changing? Is the nine to five kind of a thing of the past? It is completely a thing of the past, I think. For some jobs, it still remains as a central pillar of the way that people organise work, but we're seeing more and more young people engage in flexible work, not necessarily because they want to, but it's just the nature of of the new world order and, and what the future of automation and globalization and, and new industry is looking at. You know, there's really interesting research that has come out, particularly in the last year, around the impact of, you know, flexible work on young people, particularly the instability that it brings as well, you know, during the context of COVID-19, which still continues. Young people in the flexible economy were hardest hit during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And when we look at, you know, people who are juggling so many different jobs. I think there is a, a, a level at which it's part of the, the new norm. So people just have to normalize themselves towards it. But also for young people, it offers the opportunity to be able to work on things that they're passionate about and be really selective in the skills that they're wanting to develop. I think when you can get caught in a nine to five job within a you know specific space or domain with one contract, it actually prevents sometimes that development that you might want from you know managing your own time, being a freelancer, managing clients. So I did a whole lot of research actually with um, YLab last year where we brought together a group of young people from across Australia to start to unpack and deeply understand their perspectives around what flexible work was like for them and why they'd chosen that that style of work. And that kept coming up time and time again is actually, you know, for those that choose to opt in, it's this space where we really have the opportunity to, you know, have a side hustle or try um, a completely different thing rather than just working within one context. You mentioned something there that, you know, this is the way they're working, but it might not necessarily be the way they want to work. When it came to those discussions in your research, what was the prevailing answer to that? What did young people want to be doing? I think it's, it's always different for every young person, but 
we really recognised that young people wanted more support in the ways that they were organising work. I think for a lot of young people, until COVID-19 hit, they didn't really recognise how many things there were within their context at work that were quite risky, you know, not having, you know, the understandings of super or what contract work meant for their safety or their ability to support themselves when times were tough, not having casual leave. So there was a really interesting things there around what young people wanted for the future in terms of supports from government, as well as the different companies that they might be contracting with. We've touched on this a little bit. You know, you mentioned that you had to change your shooting and release schedule for Common Ground and obviously the broader sector was affected, but how was your work impacted by COVID-19 in 2020? Yeah, it was a really interesting year. I think I've I've talked to a lot of people about how I think COVID-19, like this is a very very privileged position for me to share, but COVID-19 for me came at a, a really good moment. Like I needed to step back and slow down. And I was in Melbourne at the time. I'd been in Melbourne for about six months and I'd been trying to get home back to out in the country in Central Australia and Kadich country and I hadn't had the opportunity. I'd been constantly in workshops or doing speaking gigs and had engagements across the east coast of Australia and when, you know, the office shut down in Melbourne and we were working at home, I was like, this is the time to go back to Central Australia. So I packed my bags, I jumped on a flight, I came back to Alice Springs and I have spent most of the last year being back here. It's been amazing in that I've had more time to connect with community, more time to be on country for me, which is, you know, in Central Australia, and more time to hopefully slow down. I think we had to pivot really hard when I was at YLab. All of our workshops, which are always face-to-face engagements, had to be done online. So we were in Zooms. We, you know, picked up new software along the way to enable us to connect with young mob from across the country. And, and surprisingly, it worked better than we could have ever imagined. There's something really interesting around access and barriers to access when you look at online engagement and, you know, obviously having internet and some kind of device to, to get onto that internet is, is one barrier. But once you have people in a Zoom room and you have a, a whiteboard software ready to go, the space to connect with young people online is, is really strong and it provides the opportunity for, you know, some young people who want to speak, they can speak, some young people can write you know, and, and have their voices heard in different ways. And, and the dynamic of that means that we can include more and more voices into the work that we're doing. But I guess with the context of the film work we do at Common Ground, we had to push a lot of that back because our communities closed down very quickly in March last year. And that's testament to the incredible leaders that we have, you know, the elders and, and First Nations people across health organisations and peak bodies who, who shut down access to our communities and and really provided a space where we could protect our elders and our vulnerable people from COVID-19. And within that context, we couldn't shoot anything. So we had to push all of our films back. But within the space of, you know, being able to work remotely, there's still so much that can be done without being in that face-to-face engagement, which I think is quite surprising because prior to that, there's almost this fearfulness that people hold around engaging online. You know, it has to be face-to-face, but you get access to incredible people when everyone's online. You know, I've met elders from across the country who I would never have had the opportunity to speak to unless Zoom became the thing of 2020.
You make a really interesting point around space there. And something that's just occurred to me is there's something very egalitarian about the Brady Bunch wall of faces we see when we're talking to people in a Zoom gallery. Whereas in other spaces, when people are physically together, I guess there's always that question of hierarchy and how people are arranged for discussions and those sort of collaborations. Yeah, it is really, really interesting, isn't it? Um, and and <laughs> I think quite interestingly, when you think about the older generations on Zoom potentially have a more challenging time in using using that kind of software. So you notice that young people are able to jump in straight away and those potentially with less experience feel that you know, in that Zoom space, they hold some kind of expertise as well around how to communicate and and how to use those tools to have conversations that are really fruitful and, and really, you know, egalitarian. It's a it's an interesting concept. And I have definitely seen Zoom spaces where, you know, there are people that sit back and are quiet in order to let, you know, people with expertise and, and deep lived experience or eldership to speak. But it does create that neutral footing. You know, when you put it into gallery view, there's so much amazing connection that can happen. You mentioned that you've been on country for most of the last six months. Is that the most time you've spent there since you would have moved to Melbourne to do your studies in the university? Surprisingly, not as much. Like I have spent about five to six months every year back in the central desert, but it's generally split up more. So I'd only come up for two weeks or I'd come up for two months. But you know, over the last year, I've spent three months at a time up here or four months at a time. And that just really means that I can settle into a rhythm here. And it's just so incredible to be able to move between both spaces. And I think, obviously, there's been challenges with the borders. (laughs) Absolutely. Many, many challenges. Um, But I feel so thankful to have had the opportunity to spend more time back home. There is this constant push and pull that I think a lot of young First Nations people experience, particularly those from regional and remote areas where, you know, there's so much going on in our cities and there's so many incredible, you know, cultural projects and opportunities for young people. Uh, But then there's also so much opportunity at home and so much opportunity to connect with our old people and continue learning and, and becoming First Nations young people that hold, you know, language and culture and ceremony and song within us. So it's this tension that we exist within. And I think I'm just constantly trying to find that balance. You've mentioned connections there, and that's really kind of the underlying theme we're trying to keep going through this season of Game Changers of the ways people are reconnecting after what was such a bizarre year last year. And I mean, that's what your work is all about. It's really about educating and creating social change and building those connections. Is it work that you were always drawn to? Yeah, it's a great question. Not really, to be honest. Like when I was growing up, connection wasn't the central focus in anything that I was doing. But what really was, was for me an understanding that our world isn't equal. And particularly growing up, you know, within the context of Alice Springs, you see a colonial frontier that exists here that exists all across Australia, but it's really overt. And you see um, young people and old people who are treated with systemic racism and existing within a world that wasn't built for them. And, and the lens that I brought to that thinking was wanting to better understand economic systems and why our economic systems aren't designed to centre marginalised communities or First Nations communities in particular. And that's what led me to head off to Melbourne Uni and that's what led me to begin 
trying to learn more about the world. It wasn't actually this idea of storytelling or connection that really drove me towards that journey. But what was deep in my understanding was the power of storytelling. And I come from a a family of storytellers, filmmakers from three generations of filmmakers now who all come from Alice Springs. And my nana was the co-founder of a media association that was the first Aboriginal owned media association called Karma. And, you know, as co-founder of Karma and, and the work that she did, I saw the power of storytelling, but I didn't recognize that that was what I wanted to, to do when I, I finished my studies and, and went off into the world. I wanted to, to think more out of the box and have the opportunity to explore beyond the current economic paradigm, but I definitely did learn the kind of rigor and understanding of the current context that's needed to think about what future systems might look like. You know, I was there for three years and I think what I gained that really has been incredibly valuable to my work has been through the network effect of being connected to people from all across Melbourne and and all across international communities who have really unique ways of looking at the world and really unique positionality within everything. And I think those networks and the conversations that I had within the context of my degree have really led to interesting paths that have continued for me, whether it's through Common Ground or through my work um, centering systems change at, at YLab. It's really been that foundation that I started with that has helped to create that journey. So, so much of your work is future facing. You're thinking about new systems. You're thinking about changing paradigms. I'm curious, are there major challenges or opportunities that you think are going to come to light in the next few years that we should be talking about or thinking about more now? I think that there is a really big movement that is going to continue to happen. And we're just starting to see it now around centering First Nations knowledges across our systems. And, you know, whether that's economic systems, whether that's looking at mental health and well-being, or environmental systems or science or arts, there is so many answers to the world's biggest, most wicked problems held within First Nations knowledge systems. And I think that Australians in the globe more broadly are starting to understand that. And there's a really big opportunity to embrace that knowledge and to centre it in all of our lives. And rather than looking at really specific examples, I just think that as we move beyond the kind of colonial world that we currently exist within, we've seen capitalist society, you know, and capitalist spaces across the globe failing like never before over the last year. Whereas we've seen First Nations communities being able to organise and protect during COVID-19 in in ways that other communities haven't been able to. And I just think that Australians in particular are starting to realise that, you know, we saw the bushfires last year. We've seen the answers that land management and cultural fire management can have for Australia. And there's just going to continue to be examples, I think, over the next decade. And my hope is that through those examples, individuals and collectives across the country will begin to realise that 65,000 years of knowledge has value, not just for First Nations communities, but for all of us. And that's something that we can all embrace and and all celebrate and centre in our work, whether we're, you know, working in HR or we're working on country or we're working in investment banking. And my hope is that 
in the next decade, we'll start to see more and more people recognize and embrace that. Rona, I have one last question for you and then we'll let you go. But what's one thing that's not on your resume that's helped you get where you are today? This is a really great question. I was thinking about this and I actually just redid my resume and I don't often send a resume because I feel like it's a it's quite an old school thing. Nowadays, people just look at your LinkedIn, hey. But I was I was doing my resume recently and I was looking at it and I was like, what isn't referenced here? And I think one thing that isn't referenced on a resume, which in First Nations communities we learn to always acknowledge is the ancestors and elders who are guiding our journeys, you know, without the individuals in our communities that have forged the path or who've given us the advice or have lifted us up, we wouldn't be where we are today. For me, there are incredible family members, but incredible elders who have been able to give me those pearls of wisdom or provide me with that path and create that path for me that I wouldn't be able to be where I am without them. And, you know, when you look at a CV, it's often just a a list of achievements. But I think my greatest achievements are the connections that I have to individuals and communities who are able to support me on this journey and be on this journey in relationship with me. And a CV doesn't talk about that. So that would be my answer is, is really the people that exists in in relationship with me that have enabled me to get where I am and they're not all First Nations there's incredible allies and non-Indigenous people who have been individuals on that journey that have made it possible. Rona Glynn McDonald thank you so much for joining us on Game Changers. Thanks for having me. Australia's First Nations people have a wealth of knowledge ready to share, and as we move forward, it's by listening that we'll be able to take on the challenges ahead of us and build a more inclusive society. After all, we all love telling and hearing each other's stories. That's what this show is all about. Subscribe to Game Changers for new episodes or catch up at fbe.unimel.edu.au slash Game Changers. Game Changers is recorded on Wurundjeri land. The podcast is produced by me, Seth Robinson, and edited by Michelle Macklem, with support from the University of Melbourne.